listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? <laughs> it's a cash cock, honey. <laughs> song says when you can't see your way and you feel that you've gone astray doing all you know how to do remember God has not forgotten you hold your head up and be true to him for he'll open doors for you
So I come to you with a song. In 1810, con el gran grito de pasión, se levantaron con razón. Black and brown fighting together on the day I'll always remember. En el 5 de mayo, con el grito de gallo, black, white, and brown pleading together on the day I'll always remember. Because really, it hasn't been that long, so just in case Cat Williams had you guessing, let me kick y'all down with a little history lesson. century while the U.S. promoted degradation, annihilation with its military and U.S. Navy. Mexico got rid of the caste system, voted for its first indigenous president, even getting rid of legalized slavery. The Underground Railroad also ran south, which led black folks to freedom with Mexico right there to receive them. Fighting for tierra, libertad y techo With Adelitas on the front line With bullets across their pecho In the year 1946 It was the Mendez family That fought against segregation in schools Because before that They treated us like fools Pushing us out into gangs, wars and drugs And then they get pissed off at us When we become crips and bloods Traviesos, zutsuras, pachucos Fulcloristas, punks, bomberas Haraneras in the heat with the bomb as beats talking about what's really going on in the streets in the 60s in the streets of oakland california black panthers organized for answers young lords in new york fought against wars the stonewall rebellion remained true for the rights of the lgbtq aim who was down for native rights with no shame in their game brown berets in l.a learning how to fight and doing what's right in the campus of California, Filipinos were the first ones to lay down the boycott, screaming in solidarity, Isang Baksak, one rise, one fall, you come for one, you come for all. And today, Arizona and Alabama, they don't play, carving out racist laws like it's made out of clay. I stand with Emmett, Trayvon, Oscar, and Bell, with my mentor, Mumia, up in the cell, telling you I'd rather be blind than to stay quiet on a day while my people are hunt down like prey. ability to breathe is directly connected to my ability to see it's not about me never was never will be it's about we it's time to move y'all it's movement time Thank you. 
Good morning, <coughs> laborers and lovers. This is the B and you're having the Labor and Love radio show <coughs> here on Mutiny Radio in the middle of the plague year, in the middle of the plague upon us. That is our president. I want to play this one. Before we get into the show, this one is called You're Gonna Lose Your Job. Okay, it's part of a video. I, Markies, and DJ Swade. You're gonna lose your job. Here we go. You about to lose your Okay, that was You About to Lose Your Job by I. Markies. Um, about a minute 27, I think. You About to Lose Your Job, and she might be right. Chances are she's right, huh? This is the B, and it's the Labor and Love Show. And we're here talking to you on a Saturday morning, working the day shift with you. Labor news, labor opinion. 
labor history, all brought to you on Mutiny Radio. We're here at 2781 21st Street at the Mutiny. Come on down and join us. We are a neighborhood art collective, an art center better. Um, we have radio, we have art, we have comedy. You name it, we got it. We don't got it. Come on down here and make it. Come to Mutiny Radio and find your voice. This is the B, and on Labor and Love Radio, we tell you how it is. One person gets a dollar they didn't work for. Someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. You know that's true. You don't have a seat at the table, or you didn't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is where you work, you're on the menu. Chances are you're out of your job right now. And never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Of course, they're against unions. Of course, they don't want you to ally with one another across ethnic lines. This is the death knell for that kind of thinking, at least for the time being. All of a sudden now, a mighty group rose up, looked around, saw itself on the street, saw how mighty we are. How many we are. How strong we are. And we are united in purpose. That first song was, God Will Open Doors for You. By the Walter Hawkins singers, sort of a tribute to George Floyd. Because of all the doors he opened for us, all of a sudden, all kinds of doors that we just assumed were closed and were impossible are open, are wide open. And we're out taking over the, the, the street. Wide open. The police are back on their heels. People are now are talking about defunding police. Will be an interesting idea, huh? Talk to uh, Angela Davis. I want to play some Angela Davis after this. In the meantime, now there's a national economic withdrawal boycott going on. Thanks to Norman for this one. This is sort of a schedule of things to boycott as the week goes by. National economic withdrawal boycott. Friday, June 19th. Celebrate Juneteenth. Find out what it is. Celebrate. Sunday, June 21st. That's Father's Day. Boycott big chains and department stores. Walnut, Walmart, <laughs> Sam's Club, Target, etc. Monday, June 22nd, boycott fast food and chain restaurants. McDonald's, Popeye's, Hip Hop, 
checkers, in and out. Tuesday, June 23rd, boycott online shopping. No getting out your computer and blowing a bunch of money to make yourself feel better. Wednesday, day four, June 24th, boycott supermarkets. Boycott supermarkets. Giant shoppers, LDS, whatever. Day five, when Thursday, June 25th. Repeat days one and two, boycotting big chain in department stores and fast food stores. Day seven, Saturday, June 27th, do not spend any money at all, period. Shop and get what you need on off days. Shop farmer's markets and local black-owned business services. Share with family and friends. Be sure to help out the elderly and anyone with children. Shop black-owned any day. I might add brown-owned any day. Those are the people who need our help. Small businesses, people of color who have started businesses. Okay, I wanted to talk from Angela Davis. Now, Angela Davis is talking here specifically about the Confederate statute. How about this? Defunding the police. Let's hear what she says about this. Angela Y. Davis. On, uh... Across the United States and around the wor world, in St. Paul, Minnesota, Wednesday, activists with the American Indian Movement tied a rope around a statue of Christopher Columbus and pulled it from its pedestal on the state capitol grounds. The AIM members then held a ceremony over the fallen monument. In Massachusetts, officials said they'll remove a Columbus statue from a park in Boston's North End after it was beheaded by protesters early Wednesday morning. In Richmond, Virginia, protesters toppled a statue of Confederate President Jefferson Davis from Monument Avenue Wednesday night. In the nearby city of Portsmouth, protesters used sledgehammers to destroy a monument to Confederate soldiers. One person sustained a serious injury, was hospitalized after a statue fell on his head. In Washington, Washington, D.C., House Speaker Nancy Pelosi joined other lawmakers demanding the removal of 11 Confederate statues from the National Statuary Hall in the Capitol. Meanwhile, President Trump said he will not even consider renaming U.S. Army bases named after Confederate military officers. There are 10 such bases, all of them in southern states. Uh, Trump tweeted Wednesday, these monumental and very powerful bases have become part of a great American heritage and a history of winning victory and freedom, unquote. Trump's tweet contradicted Defense Secretary Mark Esper and Joint Chiefs of Staff Chair General Mark Milley, who suggested they're open to discussion about renaming the bases. 
and uh, a Republican committee in the Senate um, just voted to rename uh, these bases, like Benning and Bragg and Hood, that are named for Confederate leaders. Meanwhile, in your hometown of Birmingham, Alabama, Angela, comedian Jermaine Johnson is pleading not guilty to charge of inciting a riot after he urged protesters at a May 31st rally to march on a statue of Charles Lynn, a former officer in the Confederate Navy. Um, did you think you would ever see this? Um, um, you think about Brie Newsom after the horror at uh, Mother Emanuel uh, Church in Charleston, South Carolina, who shimmied up that um, flagpole on the grounds of the South Carolina legislature and took down the Confederate flag, and they put it right on back up. What about what we're seeing today? Uh, well, of course, Brie Newsom was a was a wonderful um, pioneer, and I think it's important to link uh, this trend to uh, the campaign in South Africa. Uh, roads must fall, um, and of course, I think this uh, reflects the extent to which we are being called upon to deeply reflect on the. A role of, of 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 historical racisms that have brought us uh, to the point where we are today. Um, you know, racism uh, racism should have been immediately confronted in the aftermath of of the end of slavery. This is what Dr. Uh, du Bois's uh, analysis was all about. Uh, not so much in terms of, well, what are we going to do about these uh, poor people who have been enslaved so many generations, but rather, how can we reorganize the, our society in order to guarantee the incorporation of previously enslaved people? Now, um, the attention is being turned towards the symbols uh, of slavery, the symbols of of, of colonialism um, and, of course, uh, any campaigns against racism in this country have to address, in the very first place, the uh, conditions of indigenous people. Um, uh, I think it's important that we're seeing these uh, demonstrations, but I think at the same time we have to recognize that we cannot simply get rid of the history. Uh, we have to recognize the devastatingly negative role that that history has played in charting of, uh, of the, the trajectory of the United States of America. Um, and, and so I think that, that these assaults on statues represent an attempt to uh, begin to think through what we have to do to bring down institutions and re-envision them, uh, reorganize them, create um, new institutions that can attend to uh, the needs of all people. And what do you think should be done with statues, for example, to, oh, slaveholding founding fathers like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson? You know, museums can play an important educational role. And I, I don't think we should get rid of 
all of the vestiges of the past, but we need to figure out context within which people can uh, understand the, 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 the nature of U.S. history and the, the, the role that racism and capitalism and heteropatriarchy have played in forging that history. Can you talk about racism and capitalism? You often write and speak about how they are intimately connected and talk about a world that you envision. Yeah, racism is integrally linked to capitalism. Uh, and, and I think it's a mistake to assume that we can combat racism by leaving capitalism in place. Um, as Cedric Robinson uh, pointed out in his book, Black Marxism, Capitalism is racial capitalism. Uh, um, and, of course, to just say for a moment uh, that uh, Marx pointed out um, that what he called primitive accumulation, um, um, capital doesn't just appear from nowhere. The original capital was provided by the labor of slaves. The Industrial Revolution, which pivoted around the production of capital, was enabled by slave labor in the U.S. So I, I'm convinced that the ultimate eradication of racism is going to require us to move toward a more socialist organization of our economies, uh, of our other institutions. I think we have a long way to go before we can begin to talk about an economic system that is not based on exploitation and on the super-exploitation of, of Black people, Latinx people, and other racialized populations. Um, but I do think that we now have the conceptual means to engage in discussions, popular discussions, about capitalism. Occupy gave us new language. Uh, the notion of the prison industrial complex requires us to understand the globalization of capitalism. Uh, Anti-capitalist consciousness helps us to understand the predicament of immigrants who are barred from the U.S. by the wall that has been created by the current occupant. Um, these conditions have been created by global capitalism. And I think this is a period during which we need to begin that process of popular education, which uh, will allow people to understand uh, the internet interconnections of racism, heteropatriarchy, capitalism. Angela, do you think we need a Truth and Reconciliation Commission here in this country? Well, that might be, you know, one way to begin, but I know we're going to need a lot more than truth and reconciliation, but certainly we need truth. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure how soon reconciliation is going to emerge, um, but I think that, that the whole notion of truth and reconciliation allows us to think differently about the, um, about the criminal legal system. It allows us to imagine a form of justice that is not um, based on revenge, a form of justice that is not retributive. Uh, so I think that those those ideas can help us begin to imagine um, new ways of structuring our um, institutions, uh, uh, such as, um, well, not structuring the prison, because uh, the, the, the whole point is that we have to abolish that institution in order to begin to envision new uh, ways of addressing the conditions uh, 
uh, that uh, lead to mass incarceration, that lead to uh, such uh, horrendous tragedies as the murder of George Floyd. We're going to come back to this discussion and also talk about President Trump. Angela Davis on defunding the police. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report, the Quarantine Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As the nationwide uprising against police brutality and racism continues to roil the nation and the world, bringing down Confederate statues and forcing a reckoning in city halls and on the streets, President Trump defended law enforcement Thursday, dismissing growing calls to defund the police. He spoke at a campaign-style event at a church in Dallas, Texas, announcing a new executive order advising police departments to adopt national standards for use of force. Trump did not invite the top three law enforcement officials in Dallas, who are all African American. The move comes after Trump called protesters thugs and threatened to deploy the U.S. military to end, quote, riots and lawlessness. This is Trump speaking Thursday. They want to get rid of the police forces. They actually want to get rid of it. And that's what they do, and that's where they'd go. And you know that, because at the top position, there's not going to be much leadership. There's not much leadership left. Instead, we have to go the opposite way. We must invest more energy and resources in police training and recruiting and community engagement. We have to respect our police. We have to take care of our police. They're protecting us. And if they're allowed to do their job, they'll do a great job. And you always have a bad apple no matter where you go. You have bad apples. And uh, there are not too many of them. And I can tell you, there are not too many of them in the police department. We all know a lot of members of the police. Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden is also calling for an increase to police funding. In an op-ed in USA Today, he called for police departments to receive an additional $300 million to, quote, reinvigorate community policing in our country. On Wednesday night, Biden discussed police funding on The Daily Show. I don't believe fees should be defunded, but I think the conditions should be placed upon them where departments are having to take significant reforms. Relating to that, we should set up a national use of force standard. But many argue reform will not fix the inherently racist system of policing. Since the global protest movement began, Minneapolis has pledged to dismantle its police department. The mayors of Los Angeles and New York City have promised to slash police department budgets, and calls to defund the police are being heard in spaces that would have been unthinkable just a few weeks ago. Well, for more on this historic moment, we are spending the hour with the legendary activist and scholar Angela Davis, professor emerita at the University of California, Santa Cruz. For half a century, Angela Davis has been one of the most influential activists and intellectuals in the United States, an icon of the black liberation movement. Angela Davis's work around issues of gender, race, class and prisons has influenced critical thought and social movements across several generations. She's a leading advocate for prison abolition, a position informed by her own experience as a prisoner and a fugitive on the FBI's top 10 wanted list more than 40 years ago. Once caught, she faced the death penalty in California 
After being acquitted on all charges, she spent her life fighting to change the criminal justice system. Angela Davis, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us today for the hour. Thank you very much, Amy. It's wonderful to be here. Well, do you think this moment is a tipping point, a turning point? You, who have been involved in activism for almost half a century, do you see this moment as different, perhaps more different than any period of time you have lived through? Absolutely. This is uh, an extraordinary moment. I've never experienced uh, anything like the conditions we are currently experiencing. Um, the conjuncture created by the COVID-19 uh, pandemic and the recognition of the systemic racism that had that has been rendered visible under uh, uh, these uh, conditions because of the disproportionate deaths in Black and Latinx communities. And this is a moment I don't know whether I ever expected to experience. Um, when the protests began, of course, around the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud uh, Aubrey and Tony McDade and many others who've lost their lives to racist state violence um, and vigilante violence. Um, when these protests erupted, I remembered something that I've uh, said uh, many uh, times to encourage activists who often feel that the work that they do is not leading to tangible results. Um, I often ask them to consider the very long trajectory of black struggles, and, and what has been most important is the forging of legacies and new arenas of struggle that can be handed down to younger generations. But I've often said one never knows when conditions may give rise to a conjuncture such as the current one um, that rapidly shifts popular consciousness and suddenly allows us to move in the direction of radical change. If one does not engage in the ongoing work, when such a moment arises, we cannot take advantage of the opportunities uh, to uh, change. Um, and of course, this moment will pass. The intensity of the current demonstrations cannot be sustained over time, uh, but we will have to be ready to shift gears and address these issues in different arenas, including, of course, the electoral arena. Angela Davis, you've more long been a leader of the critical resistance movement, um, the abolition movement. And I'm wondering if you can explain the demand, as you see it, what you feel needs to be done around defunding the police and then around prison abolition. Well, the call to defund the police is, I think, an abolitionist uh, demand. But it reflects only one aspect of uh, the process represented by uh, the demand. Defunding the police is not simply about withdrawing funding for law enforcement and doing nothing else. And it appears as if uh, this is uh, the, 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 the rather superficial understanding uh, that has caused um, Biden to move in the direction he's moving in. It's about shifting public funds to new services and, 
and, and new institutions, uh, mental health counselors uh, who um, can respond to people who are in crisis without arms. Uh, it's about shifting. Angela Davis there talking about uh, defunding police and what that means. And in her interpretation, it means putting money into programs that will make police's jobs easier in the long run, putting money into community relations, putting money into training without the chokehold. In other words, making the, the whole idea of what a cop is, what a policeman is, different. As Marx explained police, he said police act as a buffer between classes. In other words, they keep the stage clean, keep it open for capitalists to run in and get rich. Police maintain the environment for that to happen. And to do that, as, as the contradictions between classes sort of accumulate, that job becomes harder and harder. That job re requires, in the mind of a lot of people, requires massive violence, requires dehumanizing the police. Um, check on Labor and Love Radio. Uh, there's a, a connection to a guy who said, talks about bastard police and why police will never change. As long as the environment around them and the expectations never change, they're not going to change. Here's one from Eustergate. What are we going to do about the man in blue? What are we going to do? What are we going to do about the man in blue?
of Bob Marley songs there, <clears throat> or Bob Marley versions. Let's get together and feel all right, Slash. 
People get ready, the Curtis Mayfield classic. Before that, we had Stir It Up. <coughs> Stir it up, and that's what we're doing. We're stirring it up. We're stirring up the soup to change the mix. For that, um, Men in Blue. Um, you don't know, I mean, I didn't know. A punk band from the 80s with what are we going to do about the men in blue? Very good question, huh? What are we going to do about the men in blue? That's a national debate now, thanks to George Floyd and the, the reaction that his murder, his torture and murder have caused these incidents happen over and over and over again. We're going to, after the Radio Labor Show, we'll go through a, a catalog of them, of incidents, of crime, of riots, actually, white riots, um, destroying black neighborhoods, etc. What are we going to do? Always a question. Okay, let's listen up to play what we're gonna do. We're gonna listen to Radio Labor, our worldwide labor report. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, June twelfth, twenty twenty. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, a proposed e-commerce agreement would give corporations even more control over countries. How a global law can help women during the pandemic. The Labor Start report about union events and singing. We do the work. This is our day. We do the work. We do the work. This is Radio Labor. The International Trade Union Confederation is calling on the World Trade Organization, the WTO, to drop its consideration of a new global e-commerce agreement. The ITUC is the organization which represents national union centers such as the Ghana Trade Union Congress at the world level. It says a proposal being considered by the WTO would exacerbate inequality and restrict the ability of governments to regulate in favor of their citizens. To find out more about the proposed WTO agreement, I talked to Yorgos Altensis. Mr. Altensis is a policy officer in the ITUC's Economic and Social Policy Department. I asked him what sort of issues are being addressed by the e-commerce agreement being proposed at the WTO. There are issues like e-signatures and online authentication. Another one is access to source code, which is algorithms and software design. Two more topics, the free data flows and the storage of data. And I will give practical examples about that. So, for instance, geolocation. Big data companies know where we are at any point. They know our sleep patterns. They know a lot of our thoughts when we search in search engines. Symptoms we have. A lot of people Google their symptoms. Products we buy. Content of conversations that we have. For instance, in a pizza evening with friends. 
So transferring this data to countries with low or no regulation on how this data are used allows them to extract behavioral patterns to the extent that they can predict behavior or know more about us than we know about ourselves. Parminder Jit Singh from IT for Change is putting it in the following way. He says that what land was for feudalism, what capital was for capitalism, is data for the new economy. It is the very source of, of wealth. These companies now effectively turn data into intelligence, and they are becoming the brains of sectors. In the report, we have the example of the agricultural sector. We are in the very beginning of worker-less camp farms with robots being able to identify plants that need watering, fertilizer, and picking. And the amount of this intelligence by satellites and other data is now being turned into advice or orders to farmers on when to apply pesticides and other products. And this leads to the vertical integration of the agricultural supply chain. The free movement of data makes it easier for big data agricultural companies to compile this data and extract intelligence out of that. You've mentioned a number of issues such as free data flows and the storage of data. How would the proposed WTO agreement affect those issues? Yes, the agreement is in fact going to deregulate or tie the hands of the governments in order not to regulate. At the moment, there is uh, there's not much regulation, government regulation on cyberspace, e-commerce, and Internet. But it is increasing. Governments are taking measures. So this WTO agreement would tie the government's hands, really, uh, and oblige them not to regulate. The WTO works in this particular way. They write rules that say what governments should not do, not what they should do in a positive list of obligations. For instance, high personal data protection codes or access to big data for small and medium enterprises or state-owned enterprises and others to avoid monopolies and competition issues. So the WTO agreement, the potential agreement at the moment, is not agreed yet, would kill the prospects of regulating big data at all. A report analyzing the proposed WTO e-commerce agreement was commissioned by the ITUC and authored by the New Economics Foundation. You can find a link to the report on the Radio Labor website. As the pandemic disproportionately hits women workers, a global law could help. See Marie Ainsborough reports. There is growing evidence that women are being hit the hardest by COVID-19. That's why Public Services International recently conducted a webinar about what can be done to help women during the pandemic. The PSI is the organization which represents national public service unions at the world level. The webinar was moderated by Marie Clark Walker, the Secretary-Treasurer of the Canadian Labour Congress. The CLC represents most unions in Canada. Ms. Clark Walker was one of the labour leaders who was instrumental in getting a new global law against violence and harassment in the world of work. The law is Convention 190 of the International Labour Organization. The ILO is the United Nations agency focused on matters of work in the world. A year ago, we were just beginning our second year of negotiations on Convention 190, a convention that deals with violence and harassment in the world of work. While it was a successful exercise in developing an instrument, it took a lot of work, a lot of consultation, and a hell of a lot of social dialogue. Today, we're feeling the effects of COVID, and we know that it's not gender neutral. Women are at the forefront of the pandemic in so many ways, 
and the issue of gender-based violence is there with all of us. Globally, women make up about 70% of care workers who are currently on the front line. They also make up the majority of those workers now deemed essential. Those working in the food retail outlets, grocery stores, pharmacies, the postal workers, those who are cleaning our public spaces, our hospitals, waste collectors, amongst others. And even before the crisis, the dominant picture for women's paid work was that of low wages, little or no labor protection, poor working conditions, including lax or no occupational health and safety, and a lack of job security and social protections. Let's also not forget that the majority of the women workers globally are in the informal sector. Since the beginning of the various lockdowns, we've heard, seen, and felt the impact on women around the world. The frontline workers who have endured violence and harassment from customers, clients, and the general public. The poor working conditions, the increase in the amount of unpaid work that we already do. The live-in caregiver or domestic worker who's working in the home of her abuser. The women with children who are also home due to school closures, having to deal with demands from the children, having to deal with demands from their partner, from family and work. We know that the incidence of gender-based and domestic violence has also increased with COVID. There have been reports of increasing incidents of violence and harassments against staff of frontline that are in frontline services, including health and social care workers, food, retail, transport workers. We've heard from informal workers who have also faced increased violence from authorities, having their goods destroyed or confiscated. For many women, staying home does not mean staying safe. Those who have lost their jobs, those who are on layoff, and women who are working from home are all at increased risk for domestic violence. Lockdown measures resulted in women being confined with violent partners. It also has meant isolation, uncertainty, financial stress, and fear about the future. All of those things which are exacerbating tensions within households and therefore increasing the likelihood of violence. During the C-190 negotiations, we spoke about all of this and what would be needed to ensure a world free from violence and harassment. The instrument provides ways to deal with all of this. You can hear an extended version of the webinar on women and the pandemic on the Radio Labour website. That was Radio Labour's C. Marie Ainsborough. Here with his report about union events is Labour Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Each day, Labour Start's volunteers collect hundreds of news items about the struggles of workers and their unions from around the world in 35 languages. Here's a small sample of all of their hard work. Our top stories sections included links to coverage of how and why the global labor movement is providing material solidarity to the Black Lives Matter movement inside and outside the United States, calls for 150,000 seafarers marooned on their ships by the pandemic to be allowed to return to their homes, and the need for sufficient child care if women workers in Britain are going to be able to return to work as the lockdown there eases. This week, the emerging trends in our news coverage are the continuing and increasing impact of the pandemic on workers in the travel and hospitality industries, especially air transport. 
Millions of workers have been affected, often in countries with minimal support programs. This week, announcements by Russian, German, Canadian, American, Argentinian, and Australian airlines brought more bad news for over 200,000 maintenance and administration workers, cabin crews, and pilots. In the United States, unions are debating the nature of their relationship with the unions representing police officers as anger over police killings of African Americans continues to build. For our Working Women pages, our volunteers found news of a Mexican activist lawyer arrested for her work in the border factories that feed American businesses and the obituary of a woman union leader who played a key role in the struggle for pay equity in the United Kingdom. All of the pandemic-related news affecting women workers is, of course, bad, as women continue to bear a disproportionate share of the impact of the pandemic. Unions are starting now to focus on the extent to which the recovery will bypass women. And this week, you can look to the Spanish version of the page for lots of positive news about the fights against increased domestic violence led by unions in Europe and in Latin America. Our current photo of the week is of garment union activist Soy Shroche as she was released from prison in Cambodia after a Labor Start online action. She was arrested after a Facebook post criticizing an employer for its COVID-19 response. Current campaigns that we are running at the request of unions around the world include an urgent appeal for solidarity with hospital cleaners in Malaysia who, in the midst of the pandemic, are the target of a union-busting campaign by a multinational corporation. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now here is John Fromer with We Do the Work. We plant the food. We drive the cab. We run the lab. We build the bridges. We fly the plane. We do the work. This is our day. We do the work. We do the work. We do the work. This is our day. We do the work. We do the work. We 
that was John Fromer with We Do the Work. Play another traditional song. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. seen him in the watchfires of a hundred circling camps. They have builded him an altar in the evening dews and damps. I have read his righteous sentence by the dim and flaring lamps. His truth is marching on. Glory, glory, Written burnished rows of steel As ye deal with my condemners So with you my grace shall deal Let the hero born of woman Crush the serpent with his heel His truth is marching on Glory, glory, Roll right over them, we're gonna 
the union on as the almanac singers, one of the uh, manifestations of the people around the weavers, the almanac singers. And before that, although cut a little short, was Odetta with the Battle Hymn of the Republic. We need to remind ourselves. We need to remind ourselves that our work is profoundly moral. Okay? We are trying to bring people together to organize and work with the people who are needy, people who, because of the economic system, are struggling every day for survival, as well as the racism piled on top of that. <coughs> Malcolm X once remarked that you can't have racism without capitalism. And Angela Davis earlier in that part we played was talking about that, the connection between capitalism and racism. How they feed one another and how that's the way that capitalism develops. I want to pick up on a story from Radio Labor uh, about a uh, Mexican-American uh, named Susana Prieto Terrazas. And this is from the Labor Notes website. Real problem for Maquila bosses. So is, so is Susana Prieto Terrazas. a labor lawyer who lives in El Paso, Texas and practices labor law in Mexico. The valiant years of defense of maquila workers in Ciudad Juarez, despite its low level of unionization, made her beloved by many workers there. Unlike most Mexican labor lawyers, she constantly gives free advice on both law and organizing. January 2019, Prieto showed up in Matamoros after newly installed President AMLO, López Obrador, doubled the minimum wage for border towns to 176 pesos a day, $9.05 per day. That was great, but Matamoros workers were already making that. He counseled and she organized helping thousands of workers at dozens of maquilas strike to demand a 20% wage increase and a bonus of 32,000 pesos. That's $1,600 US. Prieto was a firebrand, a leader, and a counselor giving workers hope they could finally free themselves from the unions that sold them out repeatedly. Because of these strikes, she helped organize a new left-wing union called the National Independent Union of Industrial and Service Workers, S-A-N-E-T-E-S. -E Susana Prieto is beloved by many macula workers. However, she's a real problem for the lords of the macula. 
and their puppet politicians because she threatens the huge transition, the smooth transition to the post-COVID-19 human sacrifice on the altar of herd immunity. So she's been arrested. The authorities have 48 hours to charge her or release her. At the Matamoros police station, a woman held a sign that said, she fought for us when nobody else would. Now we fight for her. There's a place here on the Labor Notes website where you can Help, help Susana Prieto by signing a uh, by signing a petition demanding her release. But we'll see what happened with this. Susana Prieto, Mexican labor leader. All right. One more now. This is uh, about the Labor Council in uh, in um, Seattle, and one of the problems that's emerging now is the disconnect between the labor, the unions representing police, which are dug in and entrenched and often very much right-wing. And as we've seen in the last weeks, out-and-out out racist, out-and-out out brutal to citizens. So how do you, how do you talk about that? I mean, are these unions? Sure, they're unions. And they are workers. And they are... People who have legitimate grievances and who need to be organized. However, their organizations tend to be resolutely right-wing. And this has a lot to do with how cops are treated, I think. And the kind of people who decide to be cops. Anyway, let's read this. This is in Labor Notes, and it says, Do police unions belong in the labor movement? It's a question on the lips of many unionists among a nationwide uprising for racial justice and against police violence. And Seattle is the test case. Delegates of the Martin Luther King County Bo Labor Council, which includes Seattle and its suburbs, will decide June 17th whether to kick out the Seattle Police Officers Guild. Two resolutions brought the issue forward. One backed by the Teachers Union in the working class Highline area south of Seattle calls for kicking the cops out, full stop. The Labor Council's executive board has heard it but not voted on it. Alternate resolution submitted by SEIU Healthcare 1099 and the Food and Commer Commercial Workers Union passed July 4th 
Executive Board set an ultimatum for the police guild to meet certain demands by June 17th or else be kicked out. UFCW Local 21, regarded as a progressive force in Seattle's labor movement, finally joined the Labor Council in April, becoming its largest affiliate with 46,000 members. It also called for Mayor Jenny Durkin to resign over police violence against the protesters. So, meeting between the police guild and the labor council hasn't happened yet. Date was set, then canceled by cops, then rescheduled. An uneasy marriage. In the national scene, the Writers Guild of America East on June 8th became the first union to call for the AFL-CIO to break up the International Union of Police Associations, the largest police union in the Northwest. Richard Trumka, big labor, AFL-CIO president, has responded tepidly to the rising call. The short answer is not to disengage and just condemn. The answer is totally re-engage and educate. In 2018, the Police Guild negotiated a controversial contract with the city, community activists, and even some of the labor movement opposed the contract for its limits on and secretly around, secrecy around the discipline of police officers. But the Labor Council backed the police. Union leaders showed up in hearings to testify in favor of the contract sometimes as the only pro-police speakers in rooms packed with people concerned about police action and racism. Not a great look for labor. Not a great look for labor. Which side are you on? Are you with the community? Are you with the police? And that doesn't mean all the police We've heard over and over how many good cops there are, and that's absolutely true. But in the meantime, those other cops are murdering people and torturing people. Okay, so that's on labor notes. And uh, this is a list, a Twitter account by a woman named Erica B., Erica Buddington, I guess, is her subtitle. A thread for those of you struggling to comprehend that the recent murders are just a fraction of racial violence in the United States. American violence against its African-American citizens. She writes, we are protesting for George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmoud Arbery, Oscar, Grant, Oscar, Grant. Hundreds of years of oppression. Let's begin the lesson. And the first one is here. The Cincinnati riots 
Due to a rapid increase of black migrants to the city, mobs of 200 to 300 white rioters attacked black neighborhoods, helping to push them out of the city. Cincinnati Riots, 1829. The Anti-Abolition Riots in New York City, 1834. Week-long riot put down by military force. Resentment of black Americans caused rioters to control wide sections of the city while they attacked the homes, businesses, and churches of abolitionist leaders and ransacked black neighborhoods. The Pennsylvania Hall Fire, 1838. Furious that the hall was being used for abolitionist meetings and, and speeches given by black people and women, a mob destroyed the hall. This is just because the hall had signed up to have this meeting event. 1851, four fugitive enslaved persons hid in Christiana, Pennsylvania. The Maryland mob intent on recapturing them were met by defenders and a fight ensued. A slave owner died in this fight and the incident polarized the national slavery debate. This is the Underground Railroad where people were hiding runaway slaves. New York City draft riots, and this the mostly Irish draftees, <coughs> working class in New York City, turned upon blacks as the cause of the Civil War. White working class was upset by the Civil War draft, At, in those days, if you were a rich guy, you could buy your way out of it. So I'm sure they resented that. But they also resented free black people who were employed in lower Manhattan. White rioters attacked black people throughout the city. The death toll was 119 plus. 1863, 1866, a series of violent events that occurred from May 1st to 3rd in Memphis, Tennessee. Shooting altercation happened between police and black Civil War veterans. Mobs of white residents and policemen rampaged through black neighborhoods. Destroyed the homes of freedmen, attacking, raping, and killing black soldiers and citizens. 46 black people killed, two whites killed, 75 blacks injured, 100 black people mobbed, five black women raped, 91 homes, four churches, and eight schools. <coughs> Every black church and school burned. Imagine this now. This is your, your hometown. This is where you're living. And at any time, any little incident could set this off and they'll come down and burn down your neighborhood. Kill everybody they can. We read a lot about this in California with Chinese people. 
happens, it's happened to Chinese and blacks and Mexicans. Remember the Zoot Suit riots? We'll get to that if we have time today. I doubt if we will. Unarmed protesters, this is New Orleans, 1866. Black veterans arrived to rally for voting rights who were met by a group of armed whites who opposed abolition. Marchers were stabbed, kicked, clubbed, and shot. 50 people were killed. Opelousas Massacre, 1868. Deadliest massacre in Reconstruction era Louisiana happened 150 years ago. Smithsonian. A white school teacher journalist on the side of black liberation was beaten. Black people were accused of plotting revenge and 250 people were killed. St. Louis Globe Democrat. Headline, 100 Negroes shot, burned, clubbed to death in East St. Louis race war. Meridian, Mississippi and were accused of inciting a riot. A judge was shot in the courtroom and a gunfight erupted. 30 black people murdered over the next following day. Clinton riot. South Carolina, white supremacists wanted to regain control of state governments. 100 white men attacked black people. 94 white men were indicted by, for murder by a coroner's jury. None were prosecuted. On and on and on. Here's one black and white join. Thibodeau massacre, Louisiana. Cane cutters, while free, weren't allowed to own land, rent, and their families lived in old slave cabins. Instead of cash, workers got scrip that bought basics at a plantation store. Cane cutters worked, banded together in several sugar parishes, demanded cash wages of one twenty-five per day or a dollar. Meals were included. Workers refused. Workers went on strike and marched three weeks, 10,000 workers. State militia intervened. 300-plus black people were killed, wounded, or missing, including elders, women, and children. They said whites were involved in this. It looks like they were not. New Orleans, 1894. Wilmington race riot, Wilmington, North Carolina. After an editorial in a black newspaper, a white mob of four to 500 people marched into the newspaper office, smashed the press, and burned down the building. The rioters delayed a black fire company long enough to ensure destruction of the property. Rioters continued to shoot into black areas. Reports of the death toll are conflicting. A 
lot of these situations, white workers, supposedly unionized workers, turned against their black working class brothers as well. Anyway, on and on. Erica B. Okay. Well, you get the idea. Black uh, brutality against black people and against brown people is endemic. It's part of America. Same is true of of Mexican Americans here in California, here in the West, in Texas. See if we can find that. Okay. Um, just some labor history in two minutes. Um, this is Labor and Love Radio, by the way. And uh, we're coming to you from Mutiny Radio, 27. 81 21st Street, almost out of time. Labor history in two minutes. Okay. Trouble in the ranks. Labor history in two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1914. That was the day that the Miners' Union Day Parade was scheduled in Butte, Montana. In spite of the festivities, trouble was brewing down in the copper mines. Many of the miners were growing increasingly aggravated with the Butte Miners' Union Local 1, part of the Western Federation of Miners. Local 1 had been established in 1893, but some thought the union was too closely affiliated with the mine owners. Wages had been stagnant for more than three decades, despite the fact that the price of copper had more than doubled during that time. Mine owners stirred the pot even more by hiring Pinkerton detectives to infiltrate the union, instructed to promote violence. The day before the parade, 1,200 miners refused to show their union cards at the Speculator Mine. This meant that they were turned away from work. The next day, the miners' parade was met with jeers and taunts. Some of the protesters chased the union officials, who were riding in the parade on horseback. The angry crowd swelled and decided to attack the union headquarters. They ripped apart the union offices and tore out the union safe. They took the safe to a field and blew off the door with dynamite, finding $1,350 inside. Alderman Frank Curran tried to disperse the crowd, but they tossed him out of the second-story window of the union's office. Fortunately, he landed in a pile of carpeting that had been ripped out by the angry mob. He escaped with a broken arm and dislocated ankle. Ten days later, an unknown assailant blew up the miners' union hall. 
Citing the violence they had encouraged as an excuse, the mining company declared it would no longer recognize the union. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1904. That was the day that 18,000 workers in Chicago's stockyards went out on strike. Work in the stockyards was often brutal and dangerous. Thousands of workers toiled in the yards, many of them immigrants from Eastern Europe. They worked butchering and processing the hogs and cattle raised in the American West into meat for distribution by rail to consumers across the country. The industry gave Chicago the nickname Hog Butcher for the World. In 1904, the Amalgamated Meat Cutters Union organized a strike. The main demand was increased wages. The meatpacking companies were able to get scabs to cross the picket lines and act as strike breakers. Most were African Americans and European immigrants. Many of these workers had not been organized by the union, which was dominated by the skilled German and Irish packing house workers. Novelist Upton Sinclair visited the stockyards during the strike to research conditions faced by the workers. In his famous novel, The Jungle, Sinclair gave a fictionalized account that captured the devastating impact of the scabs on the strike. He wrote, quote, such were the stockyards during the strike, while the unions watched in sullen despair and the country clamored like a greedy child for its food, and the packers went grimly on their way. Each day they added new workers and could be more stern with the old ones, could put them on piecework and dismiss them if they did not keep pace. It was not until the 1930s when the stockyard unions took seriously the task of organizing across race, ethnic, and skill lines that they finally won a contract and gained the rights of union recognition. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. Okay, here's uh, one of our Francesca's. Six phrases with surprisingly racist origins. A weird of speech and thought, I wonder where that came from. Well, I hate to burst your bubble, but some of those phrases have very racist beginnings. Here are six phrases you never knew were racist. Okay, okay, everybody settle down. That's enough from the peanut gallery. Whether it's joking around too much in class or making comments that interrupt a presentation, the peanut gallery describes heckling or some sort of unwanted disruption. In the 1920s, the peanut gallery was the theater balcony where black folks were forced to sit due to segregation. In some places, it was even called the N-word gallery. Well, tell us how you really feel. So why peanuts? Well, today we celebrate George Washington Carver as the pioneer of the peanut, but back then, being a black scientist was taken as a joke. Peanuts were also a popular, cheap theater snack, so associating black people with peanuts was meant as an insult. Ooh, five o'clock? Sorry, no can do. If something's not gonna work out, no can do is one of the simplest ways to get the message across. But this phrase started in the early 20th century as a 
bad Chinese impression. It's not uncommon for immigrants to speak what's known as pidgin languages, which are simplified versions of a language in order to help people communicate. Instead of respecting how difficult it is to pick up another language, Westerners mimicked Chinese pidgin English, and now centuries later, no can do has stuck. Well, hey there, stranger, long time no see. When you run into an old friend, long time no see is shorthand for, it's taken way too long, but I am so happy to see you. Similar to no can do, long time no see is also a mimicry of pidgin English, but this time it's the indigenous people who are the butt of this nasty joke. Ugh, I told Cheryl not to tell Jason that I couldn't make his party and she totally sold me down the river. When you've been sold down the river, it essentially means that you've been betrayed. And as it turns out, this phrase's origin is pretty literal. So during slavery, slave owners would punish disruptive slaves by selling them to plantations in the deep south where conditions were much harder. And how do you think they got there? Why, the Mississippi River, of course. Oh, you're gonna ruin another phrase for me? Hip hip hooray. Hip hip hooray is the Americanized version of hep hep hurrah, which is meant to be a celebratory exclamation. But the original was used as a Nazi rallying cry when raiding Jewish ghettos during the Holocaust. There are a few different theories as to where hep came from before that, but it's said to be the Latin acronym for Jerusalem is lost. Pre-Holocaust, the Hep Hep riots of 1819 left countless German Jewish businesses destroyed. Ugh, I tried to buy an extra ticket for the concert out front and the guy totally f***ed me. Now this is a phrase you've probably heard a million times before, so why are we censoring it? Well, the G word is actually a racial slur. Hold up. F***ed is a racial slur? Wait, hold, hold up, who is beeping me? Yeah. So the G word means to cheat or take advantage of someone, but it started out as a nasty nickname for the Romani people. The Romani are a nomadic Eastern European group that originated from India, but these days they live all around the world. Throughout history, the Romani have been stereotyped as untrustworthy, which has been used to justify their mistreatment. When they first came to Europe, Europeans incorrectly assumed they were from Egypt and thus the G word was born. Oh, so now I have to give up my sexy Halloween costume? Okay, enough with the beeps. Oh, you mean that low rent pirate costume? Romani people don't even dress like that. Here's the thing, the G word does not mean someone who's free spirited or likes to travel a lot. Similar to the N word, the G word is a racial slur that's been historically used to uphold the oppression of an entire group of people. In this case, the Romani. Unlike the other phrases on this list, the consequences of the G word are still felt today. Romani continue to face discrimination worldwide. In 2009, France deported over 10,000 Romani people. And these days, many are no longer nomadic because of laws that target them. The last Romani regulation law to be repealed in the US was in 1998. And across Europe, they're often denied housing, jobs are forced into substandard segregated schools and are too often victims of hate crimes. And that's not even touching on the movies and reality shows that use this nasty slur to misrepresent the Romani. Ugh. So now I have to give up every phrase that has a terrible history? Not exactly. The G word still hurts the Romani people today, so I'd hope we can agree to live without it. But nowadays, the other phrases are pretty harmless. Look, I'm not here to tell you how to talk. But understanding where these words and phrases come from is an important part of understanding how racism and oppression have shaped the world we live in today. So do you know of any common words or phrases that have not so happy origin stories? Share a few in the comments and we will see you next week right here on Decoded. Last week we did a Okay, that was our Decoded feature with uh, Francesca Ramsey. 
talking about the uh, origins of common expressions. Some of them are uh, racist, like so down the river. I have to think about that stuff when I'm talking. This is the B. It's time for us to go. of swimming through a sea of podcasts. Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutinyradio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice. LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit face McRat. <laughs> burger mutiny radio thinks you'll find the best burger in san francisco at counteroffer located inside bender's bar and grill 
Counter Offers menu aims to please your drunk face. Tater tots are served daily. On Tuesday nights, Counter Offers serves specials off the Taco Bell menu, only better. You can enjoy your favorite Taco Bell item without the guilt. Counter Offer uses only fresh ingredients and never store-bought shit. Special ingredients are made from scratch daily, including beans, ketchup, mustard, habanero sauce, and ranch dressing. Counter Offer even serves vegan mac and cheese. All of this great food is served 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. daily and until 11 p.m. on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Counter Offer is located inside Bender's Bar and Grill at 806 South Venice. Be sure to tell them Mutiny sent you. Counter Offer, baby. Got the mutiny, mutiny radio. Got the mutiny, mutiny radio. Got the mutiny, mutiny radio, my friend. Got mutiny, mutiny radio. Got mutiny, mutiny radio. Got mutiny radio, my friend. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Well, shoot. From time to time, I've given it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes. And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I can tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! Oh, man, there's some amazing shit Tired of paying too much for your internet? Contracts and hidden fees got you down? Tired of supporting the same big cable companies that lobby against a free and open internet? Get Monkey Brains! Monkey Brains is a local internet provider who doesn't sell your data, bind you down with contracts, or trick you with hidden monthly fees. We're honest, local, and 100% net neutral. Residential internet for only $35 a month, business packages starting at $75 a month, Go to monkeybrains.net and sign up today. Hey, everybody. Listen to the Weekly Review with Roman every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. This is an unapologetically anti-capitalist program. We interview community organizers, activists, and artists. We talk about ways you can take action right now. So listen in to the Weekly Review every Friday from noon to 2 p.m.
subliminal SF visual and auditory mind control brings you the best, coolest t-shirt and hoodie designs and mind-bending local bands and shows at venues all over San Francisco and the Bay Area. Subliminal SF is here to destroy your sense of normalcy and plant ideas in your skull to make you cooler and a more awesome person. Check out all the badass products at subliminalsf.myshopify.com. That's subliminalsf.myshopify.com. And experience Subliminal SF. Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. We're hosts of <laughs> YouTube with Michael Spiegelman. Follow us on podcast by with our acronym L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. We watch a full-length movie on YouTube with you, and you listen to the podcast and yeah. watch the movie at the same right. time. Yeah. L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. That's every Sunday, 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, or if you're Carl, 5%. Right. I'm so lazy. Three hours later, I finally get to the show, 5 p.m. Let's hear the theme song. Oh. Let's watch full-length movies. Let's do a full-minute promo. Oh, never mind. Bye. See you next month. Or download a podcast.